there are at least seven other gay bars within walking distance of Gossip Grill. That's a women's bar in San Diego. From one bar to the next was like 15, 20 minutes. But there used to be a better option than stumbling from one to the next on foot. So we used to have this cart that would drive our guests from each bar safely. So if they wanted to bar hop within our bars, we'd drive them around. This is Alicia Pugel. Today, she's a bartender at Gossip Grill. But her first job in the neighborhood was driving the Mosemobile. It was a like a six-person, nine-person golf cart, basically, that just like had music blaring, streamers, flamingos decorated all over it, and just driving from like bar to bar. You know, I would stop at like each location, go in with a megaphone, like, all right, which one of you bitches is too drunk to drive? Get in here, we're gonna go to the next spot, or who's over this music? Let's go to the next bar and like just kind of rotate everybody between, but between all of our bars. All of the stops on her route are part of Moe's Universe, a collection of LGBTQ plus bars and restaurants in San Diego. So no matter what, we were all making money. So it's really good business strategy. Moe's Universe isn't technically a franchise. It's just an umbrella term. All of the establishments have some mutual owners and partners and share a similar kind of queer culture. The Mosemobile ran from 2009 until 2020 and offered Alicia a window into San Diego's queer community before she was old enough to bartend or go out herself. You have um, the people who are just the life of the party and they're just they're asking you to turn up the music and you're partying with them and having a great time. Alicia has been on her own since high school. I was 17 when my mom kicked me out for coming out of the closet. At this point, Alicia had known for years she was interested in girls, but she knew she couldn't tell her mom. There were like little red flags here and there of like, should I come out to my mom? I remember like being like 10 or 11 and asking her like, hey, like if I liked girls, like what would you do? Like, well, you wouldn't be my daughter anymore. Like, ah, okay. Well, I'm just asking. I'm not going to say that. But then when she was 17, Alicia's mom came to pick her up from school and caught her smoking a cigarette. And... She, like, pulled up real fast. Get in the car. And I was like, oh, shit. Just immediate sweats. I'm like, I am not going to sit in the front seat. I am sitting in the back seat. You are a scary Filipino woman. And I was in the back seat, and she's just like, I can't believe you're smoking. You're a liar. What else are you hiding from me? And I don't know what little gremlin decided to wake up that morning and place itself within my body. And I decided that that was the time that I was going to tell her. I just threw my hands up in the air. I'm like, I eat pussy. And she's like, you're going to get out of my house. Pack your shit. Get out. And I was like, fine. And so we went home. I was packing my shit. And then my mom was like, okay, so you're really leaving? I'm like, yeah, you told me to leave. So I'm leaving. Good. I don't want you in my house. I don't want that, that in my house. Okay. And then I went on my merry way. And like not even three days later, she was just like, basically asking for me to come back. And then I told her, I was like, I'm still gay. And she was like, never mind. And from that point on, Alicia had to take care of herself. She stayed with a friend at first and then got a job at a bakery in Hillcrest. That's the name of San Diego's gayberhood, where you can find Gossip Grill and the rest of Moe's universe. Alicia had always wanted to be a part of the community at Hillcrest. What drew me to it was the fact that I 
well, I went to several different high schools and in any school I went to, I was the main person that was very out and proud about it, even if I got bullied for it or whatever. So I never really had like a sense of community growing up. But around Hillcrest, she fits right in. It's just so inclusive and welcoming. And when you meet people here, it's not like you're joining a clique. You meet one friend who becomes your family, and then they introduce you to the other part of the family who introduces you to more part. And then you're just, that sounds super corny, but you're just surrounded by love and it's a beautiful thing. So when she got a job offer to drive the Mosmobile, it was pretty much a no-brainer. I'm 19 years old. I'm like living on my own. Of course I'm going to take another job and make more money. Alicia had a blast driving the Mosmobile, but she dreamt of working elsewhere in Mo's universe at Gossip Grill. The only problem was you had to be 21 to bartend there. I mean, I love my gay boys. I love the boys. I love the, like, I love them, but I wanted to be a gossip because of course I wanted to be more, more familiar, you know? So as soon as she turned 21, Alicia decided to shoot her shot. I actually, I don't even know if she wants to tell the story, but I don't care. I'm going to tell it anyways. She's talking about Mo Girton. That's the owner of Gossip Grill. And before you ask, no, Moe's universe is not named after this Mo. She spells her name M-O-E, and the universe is just spelt M-O. It's actually short for homo. Homo's universe. Very fitting. It's all just a very confusing coincidence. But back to Alicia's story. I went in and my coworkers were telling me to like shoot for gossip and like try to um, start working there instead of driving the Mosmobile. I went there on a night where I was I was out with my friends, so I was already really drunk, and I walked up to the bar, and it was not a it was not like cutest moment. I went up to the bar and I was like, no, no. Our old bartender at the time, Emily, turned around and was like, I'm not Mo, that's Mo. And in my defense, all of our bartenders had like the same haircut, like four of them. Um. So then I went up to Mo and I was lit. And I was like, I want to work here. And Mo was like, okay, cool. See you at 10 o'clock in the morning. Be ready for an interview. And I was like, oh, shit. But as promised, Alicia showed up the next day. Super hungover, but ready to work. And Mo was just like, yeah, I just wanted to see if you'd show up. But yeah, you got the job. Like, and like within the company, know like who you are. You know, you'll start as a host. Alicia eventually worked her way up to bartender but it took even longer for her to go full-time there. I used to have like two, three jobs at a time just so that like, because I like making money and like, I like to keep busy. Growing up without a lot of money, Alicia was always worried about financial stability and got into a habit of overworking herself. But Mo didn't like to see Alicia wear herself out like that. I remember, I think I was talking to Mo about a schedule, like my schedule and my availability or whatever. And Mo was just like, girl, you still are working like two, three jobs. Like why? I'm like, I, because money. Oh, what do you, what other reason is there? All right. Like, what does it have to look like for you to not have two, three jobs? I'm like, uh, full time and primary positions and, and hours. Okay, cool. We're going to make that happen. It'll take time, but we're gonna make that happen. And like, I think it was like less than six months. Back in 2015, Alicia needed a place to stay again. She had just broken up with an ex and was spending her nights couch surfing and sleeping in her car. And I was basically homeless for a short period of time. And again, Mo stepped in. So she opened up her home to me and let me stay there. 
worked it out so like I would dog sit so that I would have some place to sleep and to stay. I saw I didn't ask for it. I wasn't like, you know, sob storing to to her. She just knew that I was struggling and just immediately was just like, This is this is an option for you. Like my home is your home. And for Alicia, this was more than just a place to crash. It was incredibly comforting to know someone was looking out for her. Even to this day, like I've been living in my spot for like three, four years now. And it's still like a lingering fear of like not having a roof over my head, even if I am financially stable. So to have somebody put your pride and shame aside and be like, I love you, your family, let me help you. And that's how, that's how Mo just is. That's how Mo always is. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number 10, Gossip Grill. Mo Girton was working as a retail manager when she got her start in queer nightlife. The year was 2000. Uh, I picked up a side job, a second job, kind of a fun job. Mo is small and sun-kissed with an ash-blonde spiky mohawk. She normally dresses crisp and classy. Think button-downs, blazers, and bow ties. Back in 2000, Mo was hired as a coat check slash security guard at The Flame an iconic San Diego lesbian nightclub, which closed back in 2015. But I tried to quit my first day, and it just wasn't wasn't a fit for me. I was doing security, and my security was just boring. <laughs> so. so at the end of her first shift, Mo was getting ready to give notice and quit. And this manager walked out with the absolute perfect frosted mullet. Granted, it was 2000. It's a little outdated, but it was fabulous. <laughs> And she hit me on the arm and said, you look like a barback. You want a barback? I'm like, sure. And she literally took me in at that moment as I was five feet away from uh, letting my manager know and took me in and trained me to barback and it changed the whole uh, course of my life. Mo quickly made her way up the ladder at the flame. From barback to bartender to management, it all came naturally to her. So, of course, this wasn't a side gig for long. I was making more money as a bartender than as a retail manager. So I just kind of made that transition into full-time working at the bar. But Mo took her craft a step further than even the best of bartenders. She taught herself flair bartending. Flipping bottles, juggling, blowing fire, balancing martinis on my head and pouring, and, you know, just little things. And they're like, whoa! So sticking Red Bull cans to your hand, and, yeah, it's just all sorts of little fun little tricks and stuff. Mo kind of had to learn all these tricks to compete with one of her fellow bartenders who was trying to take her business. I did that to set myself apart from her. You know, she used to try to give me a really small section. She'd take half the bar and she'd only want to give me a few seats. Uh, So I had to learn how to pivot in that. And in doing that, I really created my own clientele and it started exploding and started out ringing everyone in the bar. In 2004, the flame was sold to a developer. But fortunately for Mo, she had caught the attention of Chris Shaw and Doug Snyder. Chris and Doug were actually the original owners of The Flame, back when it first opened. 
And now, the two men were opening LGBTQ-friendly bars and restaurants in Hillcrest. They had one spot already, Hamburger Mary's, and were opening a new restaurant called Baja Betty's. Mo applied to be a part of their opening crew, and she got the job. And then... I actually turned Betty's into a women's bar by accident. How did Mo accidentally turn Baja Betty's into a women's bar? Well, at the time, both women's bars had closed down, both lesbian bars. The Flame sold, and then Six Degrees had closed, like, I think six months later or something like that. Uh, so there was nowhere to go for women. But they all knew me as being, I was one of the only bartenders in the Flame that was still in an active bartending role, and I had my clientele. And her clientele, made up of mostly queer women, followed her to Baja Betty's. Oh my God, I'm going to date myself. This is back to MySpace days. You know, so I said, you know, hey, I'm working tonight. Here's my special cocktail for the night, whatever. And really use that as a platform to build my business. And so little by little, all the women started coming in to see me. And the restaurant would be empty, but my bar would always be full. But the gay men around Hillcrest started to notice. And all the boys started being like, yeah, I don't really want to go to Betty's. It's all lesbians all the time. Back then, it was still kind of segregated. So I think they were a little turned off at the time. But it worked out in my benefit. In fact, one of Mo's business partners showed up while we were talking to Mo. Come here, Savon. Pop, pop in real quick. This is the guy that hired me at Baja Betty's. He's now my business partner, and we just opened this location up together. I had to get rid of her Baja Betty. She turned into a lesbian bar. No, it wasn't a bad thing. She took the tools and rang with it. But, you know, when our guests started saying, oh, it's a lesbian bar now, I'm like, no, it's not. Mo just knows how to run a business. So that's when we were like, okay, let's open a new place for Mo. As Mo said, it all definitely worked out in her favor. That's how she ended up with gossip. Stefan and Chris Shaw were like, we got to get Mo a restaurant. Like, we, we've got to do this. So they uh, offered me to open a lesbian bar. We went ahead and uh, opened that space. And uh, they kind of gave me full reins to, you know, as far as concept and design. So Gossip Grill officially opened in 2009. From the beginning, Mo wanted to move away from the term lesbian bar. She just calls her bar a women's bar. You know, you don't want to box yourself in too small and survive. This is why, my opinion why lesbian bars aren't surviving. A lot of women don't identify as lesbian anymore. So being a women's bar is the giant umbrella, and underneath women's bar is lesbian, gay, straight, bi, trans, pans, asexual, whatever you want to, whatever. Any, anybody that identifies with their, their, the woman in them just a little bit, this bar is for you. So boxing it in just to a lesbian bar just really cut out. It, it cut out too much of the population. For gossip... Being a women's bar is more than just a title. From the marketing to the drink menu, Mo has made the bar a space for women. There's a lot of uh, subtle things that we do that keep it a women's bar. We have a whole bunch of um, pictures, feminist women, and just awesome photos of, of women. There's no cis male anywhere up there. And I try to keep cis male off my ads as best as possible. It's always women. All the drink names are named after women. All the food items are referenced to women. My staff is majority women, but of course we play nice with everyone. But Mo's not trying to be exclusionary. She's just celebrating that bit of woman in people, as she explained. Mo does have her share of male-identifying folks on staff, and of course welcomes anyone into the bar. Well, within reason. We have a sign on the door that says, we don't care if you have a dick, just don't be a dick. You know, this is a safe space for women. Please be respectful 
of where you're at. There is a lot of playground rules everywhere. Above the urinals, there's playground rules that say, please don't gawk and stare at the ladies. It's rude. You know, don't be a creeping creepers in. No one likes a creep. You know, just kind of these like little guidelines for straight men that come in and we try to guide them in a way like, listen, dude, this is the one space we have in all of Southern California right now for us to be in a safe space. Be respectful. Just as Mo says, the decor at Gossip Grill reflects their mission to create a safe space for women. A neon sign reads, Welcome Home, the bar's motto, and casts a pinkish-purple glow around the whole space. Pride flags hang throughout the patio and the dance floor. The new progress flag, the trans flag, the bi flag, the pan flag, the non-binary flag, and many more. Out front, there's a new patio along the sidewalk. They call it the Flamingo Lounge because it's decorated with flamingo lawn ornaments. Inside, the main bar area doubles as another big open patio. So there isn't an actual door when you first walk in. Just a big metal gate and then the host stand. The ceiling over the bar is made up of a few big umbrellas draped with string lights. There's a fire pit and bar tables where people can sit and order from their menu of elevated pub food. In the next room, a disco ball glimmers above the dance floor. And in the VIP area, there's a second disco ball. Or rather, half of one. There's a crazy story behind this. It's actually Bette Midler's disco ball from Caesar's Palace. So she used to come down on that during her shows. Anyway, so we have this disco ball up there. And it's kind of a shrine for people we've lost in our community. Unfortunately, suicide is at a pretty high rate with the trans community. We've lost a lot of our own. And we have invited numerous guests to put their loved ones, whoever, whoever they want, can be in the disco, part, the disco ball. So they're always dancing. They're always a part of our, our lives. But back downstairs on the patio, I met two longtime Gossip Grill regulars. Hi, Sarah. I'm Lisa. Lisa and Rudy sat at a table just off to the right of the bar when you first walk in. Rudy wore a Hawaiian-type shirt with flames on it. Lisa was in all black with red cat-eye glasses. She has short purple hair and dark purple lipstick, almost black. They had a big pitcher of iced tea on the table in front of them, which they left behind to save their spot while the three of us stepped outside to the Flamingo Lounge. We basically are here a lot. We come in two or three times a week. It can be four times a week, usually two or three. I mean, we're older. Uh, At a certain level of time, the music's a little too loud for us old people, and it's like, okay, we've had our fun. It's time to go. The first voice you heard was Rudy, and the second one was Lisa. The pair runs the San Diego Kings Club, a group of drag performers that put on a monthly show at Gossip. Rudy is an original member of the group. It all started 21 years ago with a bartender at The Flame, the lesbian bar where Mo started bartending. The bartender, uh, Kelly, or Chess Rockwell, had started performing as a drag king, so female performing as male. And it just kind of started that she wanted to have more women-forward entertainment, all the contests and all the performing back then were drag queens, and she would perform 
and uh, decided that there needed to be an outlet. So she started a weekly uh, contest uh, every Wednesday at the Flame. The show was called Drag It Out, and the group that put it on became known as the San Diego Kings Club. It wasn't until 2017 that the Kings Club started performing at Gossip Grill, and that's where they've been ever since. And we came and we talked to Mo, and she goes, you know what, it's time we have the Kings at the women's bar, at the women's only bar. So we- Rudy had never tried drag before when he first discovered the Kings Club back at the flame. That's where he got his start. I showed up at the contest when it first started, like week one, week two, and I really, really wanted to perform. And I'm like, okay, have no singing talent, have no professional training, but I really, really want to do this. And for a couple weeks, I kept going and watching it. And um, my sister got breast cancer and I shaved my head. And when I shaved my head, I went, well, if I could walk around like this, I can do that. And that's how I became a drag king. And Rudy's drag character? Rudy Ramrod. And how would you describe your character? Well, I do a lot of different things, so I don't really think I have it. I'm more of a heavy metal and rock, but I've been around for 21 years, so I've done a little bit, but I'm more of the rock person. Absolutely. A little bit of a swagger, but, you know, I'm the old man. I've been around the block, and you're not going to take me down a peg, but not in the cocky sense, in a confident sense. Lisa is a drag performer, too. She's a bio queen, an AFAB drag queen. Uh, Currently, it's Lisa Ray Ramrod. That's what I go by. Obviously, I'm the queen to the king. Um, And I am anywhere from the timid, cute, and adorable to the I'm the biatch and don't mess with me. And I will key your car if you break up with me. (laughs) (laughs) She does that very well. She does a big range. There'll be one number where she looks like she, you know, a breeze could blow her to the next where, like, if you look at me wrong, I will cut you. Rudy and Lisa do a lot of duets together. Even in drag, their characters are partners. Usually drag kings, they're not very tall. And when you have a, you know, a six-foot queen in heels and hair, it turns into seven feet. And we're still trying to create the illusion, the masculine illusion. So here I am, five foot one, a very, very femme-femme drag queen. And it helps create the illusion with the king and the queen. And then our other two drag queens are... Similarly, not as tall. We're all about 5'1 to 5'6", In addition to Lisa Ramrod and the Lisa who sat in front of me, she has another persona, too. Sister Devlin Angels. Well, I'm also a sister of perpetual indulgence. We kind of didn't, <laughs> didn't say that. I am a sister of perpetual indulgence. She dropped that nugget on me towards the end of our interview. We are considered nuns of the LGBTQ community. We take vows, we promise to take care of everyone around us. I obviously wanted to learn everything there was to know about the sisters. So I connected with Lisa later over the phone. It's been a while. I know. If you're not exactly sure what the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is, you might have still seen them around at Pride or other LGBTQ plus events. The sisters all wear some form of long headpiece, and some of them wear white wimples around their necks. But their resemblance to traditional nuns pretty much stops there. Most of the time when people see sisters, they see the veils, they see the white face. That's kind of the telltale of a sister of perpetual indulgence. 
They all wear full faces of white makeup, but each sister embellishes that with their own flair. Glitter, colored eyeliner, chunky jewelry, feather boas, corsets, and so on. We kind of look like really fancy clowns. I know people are going to cringe when they hear that, but there's no other way to describe it. So imagine a drag queen, but in white face with lashes and jewels and gems, jewelry and shiny and sparkly and bearded uh, mustaches. Now they're all walks of life, really. Um, but that's pretty much pretty much the standard is the white face, the veils, the headpieces. And the type of headdress varies from house to house. Each chapter of sisters across the country has a shape specific to them. You know, San Francisco has what they call the ear boobs, which is essentially looks, they have a bra on their head, but it's, um, we have what's called a lunchbox. Because if you look at ours, it's like a little lunch, a little lunch bag. And we have veils off of it. Here's a 1991 clip of Sister Explosion on the BBC. She's explaining how they're able to use their costumes for social justice. Well, it's a theatrical expression. We use theater to educate. And I, I think uh, nuns come down the tradition of the court jester, the clown, the mime. And uh, we use theatrics to get people's attention. And then we slip the very serious message to them. Be, behind the habit is the serious logical argument. Th th this is just the honey to attract because it does get attention. There's no way when we walk down the street or approach people that they're not going to take notice of it. A nun costume is kind of what started it all for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It was 1979. There was a gentleman who actually was in Iowa, um, Kenneth Brunch, um, who would later become a uh, uh, vicious, vicious, power-hungry bitch. She became one of our founders. Um, and what she did is she had gone to an Iowa convent and asked the sisters if she could have some of the uh, deceased nun's habits so they could do the sound of music. They had every intention of it. For the record, Lisa isn't insulting Kenneth Brunch by calling her a vicious, power-hungry bee. That was her name, Sister Vicious Power Hungry Bitch. That was her first sister name. We now know her as Grandma Vishnu. <laughs> I literally thought that you were saying like, oh, this person ended up being a power hungry bitch. No. Okay. Was well. sister, we had Sister Missionary Position. Sister Merry Christmas and have a happy new year. Sister Mary Daisy Chain. Sister Mary in Bethlehem. Sister Joy of Many Men. Sister Mary Prophylactica. Sister Mary Doris Bitten Defarge. Well, Sister Boom Boom is really Sister Rose of the Bloody Stains of the Sacred Robes of Jesus. But that's okay, you can call me Boom Boom. All the sisters have an invented name, kind of like a drag name. Those were just a few from back in the 80s and 90s. Remember, Lisa's is Devlin Angels. We all have our demons and we all have our angels. Sometimes you have to cuddle with those demons. You know, sometimes you have to make friends with your devil to be your own angel. And so devil and angels, that's where that came from. But anyways, Kenneth brings the nun habits back to San Francisco. But they never end up in a production of The Sound of Music. Instead, 
on Easter Sunday, 1979. They decided, yeah, it'd be fun. Let's put on these nun habits. I have them. Let's go to the Castro. I'll let Sister Vicious tell you the rest. Here she is talking to ITL Media back in 2009. We were bored, and I had brought some Catholic nuns' habits from Iowa with me. We threw them on, we went out into the community, and the reaction was so strong that we decided to form a social activism, uh, social service organization in San Francisco. We realized right away that the nuns' habit contains a lot of social stigmas all in one. Gender issues, gender identity issues, and, and religious bigotry issues. Uh, so the habit to us is, is like a lightning bolt. I think she means like a lightning rod to get people to pay attention to them. But before the sisters were all about social justice, they were about theatrics. Here's Lisa again. So there for a while, they did, it was more of a street theater. It was more of a, a guerrilla art performance. Um, they have stories of, you'd see a VW van pull out. All these nuns would come out on roller skates and water guns, do all this crazy stuff, jump back in the van and drive off. Some people say the white face started with just one of the nuns. If you ask her, she liked how the white face looked on in photography and on video. And then, of course, as rumors get started, uh, some people were saying it's because she didn't want any of her clients to know who she was. Um, so, And that kind of started the whole white face. At first, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence stuck to these fun performances. And then 1980s hit. And our founder, uh, one of them, there was four main, four main ones. Uh, he was actually the first one to actually start showing signs of this sickness, whatever that was. Um, we now know it, it was gay cancer. Now we know it as AIDS. And the sisters thought there must be something they could do to help people. People were not visiting family members in the hospital. Uh, you know, uh, nobody would go and sit. Nobody was claiming the bodies. Nobody was, nobody was doing anything for anybody at the time. And they're like, you know what? I think we could do something. So they would start sitting with people in the hospitals. Like the rest of the world, the sisters didn't know how HIV AIDS was transmitted at first. But they exposed themselves to patients anyway. And they would go in and they would deliver you know, almost a, a last rites, uh, you know, a blessing, and sit with them because nobody else would. The virus was first connected to sexual transmission in June of 1982. And that same month, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence published the first pamphlet on safer sex. It was called Playfair. It's very adorable. Um, I've seen one in person, so I know what they look like. But it basically is you, you see these little nuns, these little bearded nuns teaching you how to put on a condom and how to be safe. They would pass out these pamphlets on the street. We're the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. We're passing out uh, AIDS awareness information. It's now uh, World AIDS Week. Uh, December 1st is World AIDS Day. Playfair was groundbreaking in many ways. It was written by and for gay men, and it used sex-positive language rather than shame. 
And then they decided, okay, we're going to start raising funds for this. We did the very first AIDS pamphlet, this is it, anywhere in the world in 1980. We did the very first AIDS benefit anywhere in the world in 1980 before AIDS was even, the acronym was even conceived. In fact, the first AIDS patient in the world to go public was a boy named Bobby Campbell who called himself the AIDS poster boy and Time magazine put his face on the cover of Time. He was Sister Florence Nightmare RN. And the sisters have always been on that very cutting edge with AIDS. But still, people were getting sick and dying rapidly including the sisters. Oh, it was 83 to 85. Um, They were 20 strong, and by 85, it was like six. Around this time, the first woman joined the sisters. In 1984. Mysteria of the Broken Hymen. That was her nun name. And she was one of the lesbians that's sitting in the hospitals, taking care of her her brothers. And um, it started out gay men. That's what most people know it as. So... When you see a cisgender female, they're kind of like, they let girls in? Yes, they let girls in. They let everybody in. All colors, shapes, sizes, identity. Today, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have 70 houses in the U.S. and chapters in a total of 14 countries. They're actually a charity, and they continue to fundraise and hold events for all kinds of causes. Before the pandemic? God, we were probably out. 10, 12 days a month doing something, doing a fundraiser, um, doing something, sometimes just going out, raffle tickets, jello shots, presents, here, there, yonder. But primarily, their job is to just show up and listen. They'll go out in a group, to a gay bar or a park, anywhere really, and offer any sort of emotional support that people want from them. Some houses, like ours, we call it a uh, manifestation of presence. So basically, we are manifesting our joy, and we are just here. Which is why you might have seen them at Pride events. But I remember the first time I ever did Pride with the sisters. And I remember um, our Pride parade is called the Rainbow Mile. And uh, it is a mile. It is a long one, but I remember us just turning and going onto the street. And as soon as somebody said the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Let's put our hands together for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The crowd just, you would have thought we were at a concert. And it was just like, okay, they need to see us. And I I started to get that. I wasn't even makeup at that point, but I saw the power these individuals had. Their mission has remained the same since the 80s. To promulgate universal joy and to expiate stigmatic guilt. Basically to uh, get rid of guilt and spread love. Lisa's personal ministry is related to helping folks with invisible illnesses. People like her. I mean, I, I hit the gene pool lottery, but just not the good version. You know, I would have wouldn't mind the, you know, six foot long legs, blonde, you know, built like a brick house. I mean, I'm built like a brick house. It's just short and stubby. Lisa lives with Crohn's disease, fibromyalgia, and a rare genetic bone disease called osteogenesis imperfecta, or OI. I'm one of 50,000 in the United States. Basically, that means I have brittle bones. 
if I fall, I will probably break. Um, my mom had it. I have an aunt who has it. I have an uncle who has it. And my grandmother, my mom's mother, had it. It runs in our family. I have actually the most common and the most mild form of it. This is how rare it is. I actually did not meet somebody with my bone disease until I was in my late 30s that I wasn't related to. She was diagnosed at nine months old. Because I was couch walking, as kids do, and I sat down, broke my first bone. So we went through all that shenanigans. Her condition massively impacted her childhood. I can't climb, no climbing, no running, no jumping, no sports. Um, Because I was the only kid, obviously, in my hometown, uh, you know, school districts are just very set in their ways. And I grew up in the 80s, so it's like all of us had to attend gym. Um, I became very depressed because I can't do what the other kids did. Um, I have memories of, you know, the kids would find out I had a disease. Well, you don't want to get near her because you may catch it. That's not how this works, but okay. Um, Kids are cruel. Lisa identifies as pansexual. And in high school, she started seeing this guy. Oh, he was a bit of a bad boy. Uh, For some reason, we love bad beings. I don't know what it is. We love those bad girls and boys. It just happened. And then? I found out I was pregnant at 17, and I have her at 18. We found out I was pregnant in December. And then we got married in March of 95, and then she was born in July. And then we were married 15 years. Although OI is genetic, Lisa's daughter doesn't have it. I think it was just kind of one of those, okay, we're going to wait and see, because if I panic and I get upset, that's not good. That's not good for me, and it's not good for the baby. So all my scans were showing good. Her bones looked good. Um, So there really wasn't any concern. Lisa's husband at the time was in the military. In 2006, they moved to San Diego because he was stationed there on one of the ships on 32nd Street. They were together 15 years, but the relationship was abusive. I think a lot of it um, is the emotional and verbal abuse. I didn't I didn't have an option. You know, it was, it, I think it was kind of the classic, well, you know, you're not a fit mother. I'll take your daughter. I'll do this and this and this. And I was like, okay. And then it was like, you know, one minute he'd be all lovey-dovey and everything's great. And then the next minute it wasn't. And, you know. Finally, in 2010, they divorced. Thankfully, and, and ironically, he was actually the one that asked for a divorce. He uh, got stationed in Guantanamo Bay, met his future second wife. But at that point, San Diego was Lisa's home. And he left. I stayed because I had a job. I had friends. I have a life. During these last years of her marriage, Lisa had started dealing with additional health issues. In 2006, she found a doctor who was able to give her a diagnosis. And she's like, you have Crohn's and you have one of the worst cases I have ever seen. You've probably had this your entire life. And I was talking to my mom and she's like, she goes, I took you to the ER many times with stomach issues. And they just said it was gas as a kid. But just because she had a diagnosis didn't mean her problems were over. I've always had problems with my Crohn's. Always. It just, it just was never, I never could get it under control. 
And then in February of 2013, February 3rd to be exact, which is my birthday, I went into the hospital. And I had a couple of rounds in the ER, you know, so they would just give me antibiotics and send me home. But when I went in in February, it was it was a it was a good sized abscess. So they're like, okay, well we'll keep you here. We'll try to get the abscess to drain, and then you'll be fine. And it wouldn't drain. It wouldn't drain. And we're talking like six weeks in the hospital. She finally went into colon surgery in mid March. And I honestly was so sick. I actually don't remember them talking about giving me a bag. I don't remember them talking about surgery at all. I was so sick. Luckily, Lisa had years of experience rolling with the punches. And I was like, okay, we have a bag. Let's go. Let's, you know, rock and roll. I think because I was a disabled child and I had a disability growing up. So this was just something like, okay, you know, put a cast on it. Let's go. Um, that's really much how I was raised. It's like, okay, next. You know, and so with the bag, it was like, okay, let's go. What are we doing? Where are we going? How do we do this? How do we, how do we make this work? But an ostomy bag is still a huge life adjustment, even for Lisa. I mean, I have, I literally have an incision from underneath my breastbone to my pelvic bone. Like we're talking, you know, they, they did some serious rearranging you know, this bag sits on me 24-7, so you have to learn how to take care of your skin. You have to learn how to, what you can eat, what you can't eat. Um, that first, you know, two weeks, you're on a very, very, very bland diet, and you're eating all these itty-bitty little meals, and your bag leaks. I mean, how do you how do you work on that? How do you, you know, how do you go in public for longer than 10 minutes without fearing it's going to explode? Um, It was a learning curve. It was a learning curve. During her stay at the hospital, Lisa had discovered the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. She found them on a friend's Facebook page. You know, and I kind of stalked them a little. And during that time, I had a lot, what else are you doing six weeks in the hospital? And I started doing more research about the Sisters and, and talking to my friend. And I just really kept going back, going, okay, this is this is something I'm really interested in. And now that she was recovering, Lisa hadn't forgotten about the sisters. You know, I kind of promised myself, like, this was a near-death experience. I, you know, it's kind of one of those, let's give it a second chance. This is a time you, you can really, like, do some good. So um, I told my friend, I want to join the sisters. There are four stages in becoming a fully professed sister. We very much kind of go on trend with the Catholic nun uh, matriculation as you become a nun. So it's aspirant, postulant, novice, fully professed. What you do is you go to a meeting and introduce yourself. And I'm like, okay. And I did. At the time, it was held at our LGBT center. That's the first step. You go to a meeting and you write a letter stating you want to join. I didn't have a pencil. I only had a lip liner. And I wrote on a piece of paper, I want to join. That was literally my first letter. I want to join in lip liner. And they even still have it in the archives, which cracks me up. I'm like, oh, dear. At this stage, you're an aspirant or a volunteer. And you have to spend time getting to know the sisters and the organization. And I just started hanging out with them. I started, you know, just getting to know them, which is now that I know that is all part of the process. You find out what they're all about. To get to the next stage, you write another letter. 
I'm like, yeah, I really want to do this. So I put in my letter and I basically talked about this is why I want to join. This is why I think this is a good fit for me. And then uh, the group as a collective decides if they think I'm going to be a good fit. So I kind of, you kind of go into this probationary stage, but we call it postulancy. As a postulate, you don't yet have a veil. We don't yet speak for the house because sometimes people will get in the makeup and they'll, you know, start working with us and start doing things. And then they realize, wow, this is, I love what you all do, but I, I just don't know if I could do that. Because often the work is heavy. It's, it's not easy. We have everything from people telling us they got a promotion, they got a puppy, they came out to, I don't want to do this anymore. Or I was, you know, verbally assaulted or, you know, the good, bad, the ugly. And some people, it weighs on you. It weighs on you. So we, we want to make sure that they understand what we're doing and to be able to, yes, be that shoulder, but also know that at the end of the day, you can take off the makeup and take a moment. But those that do want to continue on the process can move on to the next step, novice. Again, you write the letter. And from there, you write another letter to become a fully professed sister. That was November 26th of 2014. I got down on my knees. I looked in the mirror. As a member in the order. As a member in the order. I promised to take care of my sisters and my community and myself, even when it wasn't easy. Social activism and spiritual enlightenment. And in turn, the sisters took care of Lisa as well. I needed the sisters more than they needed me. You know, when you have something stuck to your stomach, you know, 365, 24-7, you know, a lot of people see it as dirty. And I remember the first time one of uh, we were at another friend's house and we're in the beautiful pool. And she's like, get in the water. And I'm like, I don't, you know, my my bag. And she's like, oh, just shut up and get in the water. Nobody cares. You'll be fine. And I went, oh. And that was like the first time I'd ever exposed my stomach to anybody. Like everybody knew I had it, but nobody saw it. And I went, okay. Now I'm like, you know, it's like boobs. If, if you haven't seen them by now, you know, most people have a butt hole. Mine just happens to be on the front. It's fine. When I say Lisa's ministry is the invisible illness, what I mean is that this is a personal mission she holds close to her while acting as a sister. On this mission... She's met many other people with ostomy bags and tried to help them get through it. I always tell people, I will talk shit with anybody. I <laughs> I don't care where it comes from. We'll just talk about it. And uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, it, it, it does suck. And I'm open about that. I have my good days and I have my bad days. And I try to make sure that I'm there, that people know that, hey, you, I got you. Or I may not know exactly that, but I'm here. Within the sisters, they have nun moms, kind of like drag moms. Lisa's nun mom actually doubles as her drag mom. 
That's how she first started doing drag and how she first met Rudy. I was stage managing her show, which was Vogue Decadence, and the San Diego Kings Club was Saturday. And so we were cross-promoting at the time, and that's how I met Rudy, because Rudy had been cross-promoting the Kings. It was 2013. Vogue Decadence happened every Friday, and Kings Club happened every Saturday. I was going to these shows. It was the next night. Um, and my best friend was performing. Her best friend is her nun slash drag mom. So that was kind of my in. And then so I I slowly kind of started putting myself in the way. Like every time you turn around, I was there. Yeah, she, she, she was. Rudy popped back on the call to talk about this part. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like weaseled my way. I tried to weasel my way into the into the thing. And one August Saturday night, Rudy took the bait. He's like, you know what? You have been such a help. Please, please be my stage manager. I'm like, great. So I went home that night. I sent my phone number. And this one texts me that Sunday and goes, did I promise you something? And did you bite me? Well, I'm your you wanted me to be your stage manager, so here's my number, and I don't think I bit you. I'm not tall enough. <laughs> so what happened was after she left my show, I went somewhere else to go out and drink and hang out. And the next day I saw her phone number, and I'm like, I know I talked to her about something, but I couldn't remember what. I thought it was kind of funny. And then somebody bit me in the shoulder, and I don't, don't We know. still don't know who. It wasn't me. But regardless of who bit Rudy on Saturday, on Sunday... Lisa and Rudy were making plans to meet up. I go, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm going to an event, sister's uh, pool party. I'm like, oh. And she goes, what are you going to go? I don't have any plans. In fact, my laundry's done, so I'm free. And she goes, well, if you want, you can come to this event. And I went, eh, I don't know. But we went back and forth. And I ended up going. I, I was like, well, I'm rocking, a, I'm rocking a bikini, you know, if you want to come. So I'm like, okay. So I showed up. And waited and waited. And, of course, the sisters are, we they are like cats. Have you ever tried to herd cats? And and he keeps texting me, when are you guys getting here? I was like, I promise we'll be there. I promise. So we finally get there. So we start talking. And then we ended up spending the rest of the day together with my sisters. I uh, ended up kissing that night. Yeah, that Monday, I was like, you know, I had a really great time. Um, he's like, yeah, I did too. And I'm like, well, if you ever want to do it again, let me know. And I just get win, you know, just say win, win in big letters across my phone. I was like, okay. So August 19th is our official, the first official, official date. Date, yeah. August 19th. This past August, Lisa and Rudy celebrated their eight-year anniversary. They're happily partnered, living together, and still performing duets every month at Gossip. Or, like tonight, just stopping by for a few drinks. No costumes or alter egos. In fact, uh, gossip is actually what we consider one of our sanctuaries. A sanctuary for the sisters, she means. Because it is a place that everyone feels loved and safe, and you could walk in and you're home. Like, they take welcome home very seriously. That's basically what she means by sanctuary. That the sisters have deemed it a safe and welcoming space. And as we've heard at so many other bars... Mo says gossip is a home for lots of people. This is where they come when they have nowhere else to go. 
whenever something happens, they come to us. Like after Orlando, after the shooting in Orlando, no one knew what to do. So they just, they come home. I used to always tell the story of the great blackout. You remember the blackout in 2000? In 2011, the great blackout wiped out power throughout Southern California, in addition to parts of Mexico and Arizona. It was the largest power failure in California history. And nobody knew what to do. So everyone just started showing up to gossip. Lights went out. We don't close no matter what. It doesn't matter what is going on. We will stay open, except for COVID. But, you know, no matter what, we stay open. So the blackout happened. We had everyone download the flashlight app on the phone, because this was before flashlights came on your phone. And we put out candles. Luckily, we know a lot of our clientele, and we ran IOUs. So they kept serving people. The soda guns wouldn't work. But luckily, Mo had a good relationship with the 7-Eleven next door. I literally knocked on the door, and he opened it up for me. I'm like, wait... I need sodas. Like, I have no guns right now. Can I just, can I buy something? He's like, my POS is down. He's like, just take whatever you need. I'll run you a tab and come in tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. So I just grabbed what I need. And I brought back what I didn't the next day. And yeah, just take care of each other. As the night went on, more and more people showed up at Gossip Grill. And we just continued to stay open and operate. And we were getting busier and busier and busier. And we're like, what is going on? Next thing you know, we had a line down the street. We were at full capacity with a line down the street, and everyone just kept saying, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what was going on, so I just came home. I knew you'd be here because I know you never closed, and I just didn't know where to go. And then all of a sudden, this big dually truck pulls up, honks its horn, and starts throwing these cords over. And I go out, and I'm like, what is going on? Chris Shaw, my business partner, had found someone with a generator and asked him to come down and hook up to his truck. And so then we started plugging in. We plugged in the lights. We plugged in a DJ booth. And we plugged in the gun system. And we ended up operating. We didn't have a POS, but we had some cooler, some lights, and a DJ booth. It was incredible. It was magical. <laughs> it was one of the best nights ever. And Gossip Grill would keep recreating this magic for years to come. It went so well that people kept asking me to repeat it. So for years, on the same date, we'd just turn out all the lights and have another blackout party. Because it was just so much fun. It was awesome. We're home, you know, and we have the big neon sign that says, Welcome home, beautiful. That's us. We're home. It gets me all, like, teary-eyed. But <laughs> Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Special thanks this week to Lisa, Rudy, Mo, Alicia, and Lynn. Follow us along on our road trip and see pictures at our website, cruisingpod.com, or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. If you like cruising, want to support us, and get access to more content, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. You can listen to cruising wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.